Hello, and welcome to the pilot episode of A Man Called Trouble. This podcast mixes tales of myth with the modern to look for what's timeless in the story. In this episode, you'll hear Michael, in the live and improvised way he does best, tell the story of the loathly lady from Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Hope you enjoy. Stories are important. Narrative is important. Words are important. They're so important that when the Constitution of the United States was written, the very First Amendment was about stories and words and freedom. And part of the reason they're important is because stories are a way of passing on intelligence. And stories are a way of shaping character and the shape of an entire culture and society. Some stories are true stories and some stories are fake stories. Part of the trick is to figure out what is a true story and what is not a true story. There are facts and there are alternative facts. And sometimes truths may not be wedded exactly to facts, and sometimes they are. Sometimes stories are thought to come from the gods. And Homer, when he started his story about the wandering troublemaker Odysseus, started by um, supplicating himself to the muse, who was the daughter of Zeus, the chief of the gods. And he said, O muse, start this story where you will. So what he's doing is, one, he's telling everybody who's listening that this business is important. This business comes from the gods. Another thing that he's doing is saying that what I'm about as a storyteller is important. This business comes from the gods. So I sit before you with a story that's really important. I take that seriously. In this case, I thought, what's an important story? What's an important intelligence that needs to be shared today? I started thinking about old stories. What's something that has been important enough and true enough that it's 1,500 years old, that it's more than 1,000 years old? And so the story I bring you today is a story that's about 1,500 years old. It's an Arthurian story. So how do you begin a story? If it was just a fairy tale, I might say once upon a time. Whatever that is. Like how do you be upon a time? Or beside a time? Or underneath a time? But this isn't a fairy tale, so I'm not going to start that way. I want to start outside of Camelot. Now what's Camelot? Camelot is that place where everything is perfect. We've got things figured out. It is the liberal, progressive haven of the time. Chivalry is alive and well in Camelot. There are equal rights. Everybody has a seat at the table, and it's a round table. Everybody belongs. Now, this story happens outside of Camelot 
The facts are a little bit confused here, and I wasn't able to talk to any actual eyewitnesses, but some of the eyewitness accounts vary. They all agree, however, that the story took place in the spring, and they all agree that it took place away from Camelot, and that Arthur had been separated from the rest of his men, and he was in a wood alone. Now, in a story, when you go into a wood alone, things happen. There's various stories about how he got there. Some say he was hunting. Some say he was just out enjoying a beautiful spring day and went into the wood looking for a spring and found it and took a nap and woke up. And they all agree on this point. Arthur looked up from the spring and there was a dark night prepared to cut his head off. And the stories all agree that the knight's name was Gromer, and there are some other facts about him that we'll get to in a little bit. But Gromer, Gromer hated Arthur. Part of the reason Gromer hated Arthur was because when Arthur came along with this whole Camelot equality, everybody has a place around the table business, it ruined, it ruined the thing that he had going. Now he had to share his land. Now his peasants could go somewhere else and find a place. Turns out he was a sorcerer, or at least his mom was a sorceress. There's a little bit of disagreement. One thing everybody agrees on is that there is some cursing that goes on here. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. Gromer, who hates Arthur and hates what Arthur and Camelot stand for, is ready to just slice his head off right there in the middle of the forest. Arthur says, dude, you can't do this. Like, maybe you don't buy into chivalry, but if you slice my head off, I'm unarmed, word's going to get around, and everybody's going to be after you. So, you know, there's still some international relations kind of stuff going on here. Nobody gets to act completely alone and do, do anything they want. There are some restrictions. But if you're clever, um, you can probably find a way to get around that. You can go into Crimea if you want and get away with it as long as you say the right things. So, Gromer says, fine. I'm going to give you a riddle. And I'm going to give you a year and a day to solve the riddle. You have to give me your word that you'll come back here in a year and a day, unarmed, alone, and if you have the answer to the riddle, you go free. And if you don't, your head goes free from your body. Arthur didn't have a very strong bargaining position, so he said, you know, you got a deal. How hard can it be? Gromer says, you're about to find out. It's a simple question. You have to come back and tell me what it is that a woman wants the most. How hard can this be? I know a lot of women. So they make the deal. Gromer goes away. Arthur finds his way out of the wood. And... Uh, um, things vary here. Some people say he didn't tell anybody about this, um, but most stories say that he told his men as soon as he found them, and the first one that he saw was his nephew, Gawain. And uh, Gawain says, you know, uncle, you don't look so good. What just happened? And Arthur tells him about this encounter with the Dark Knight and this whole riddle thing. Gawain says, huh, piece of cake. We know a lot of women. Let's get started. So they started by, you know, where would anyone start? You go to your social networks. The first thing they did, they, um, they stopped off at a, a castle along the way. 
the little hunting group had dinner there, and they asked all the ladies of the court, what is it that a woman wants the most? And everyone had an answer. Um, one said children. One said power. New mother said sleep. Somebody else said, said nice clothes. Somebody else said nice skin. And all of the answers were true, but none of them had the ring of truth. And everyone was different. But they had a whole year to do this. So they worked on it for a while, and the more women they asked, the more answers they got. Now, surprisingly, a lot of answers came from men, too. Those didn't always line up with the women's answers. But everybody had an opinion about what it was that women wanted the most. But none of them, like Arthur and Gawain, they, they could tell none of these had the ring of truth. So, you know, then they branched the search out a little bit. They asked Siri. Siri, what does a woman want the most? You know what Siri said? He said, that's an interesting question. That wasn't very helpful. So um, the next thing they did was a Twitter campaign under hashtag what a woman wants. They got all kinds of answers to that. They weren't the kind of answers I really want to talk about here. I can't confirm this, but I'm told that most of the answers came from Russian trolls. Trolls were a real problem back then. Um, as well as ogres and elves and things like that. Now, you ask, they ask the Google, what does a woman want the most? Google will tell you um, what Cosmopolitan thinks a woman wants the most. Um, and it comes, comes down to beauty and money and these other things. But none of them had, like, the answer that was right. Time passes, as it does. The year is gone. We went through the fall, we went through the winter, and now it's spring again. And Arthur is riding out from Camelot the day before he has to go back north to meet Gromer in the woods. And there's some disagreement about where actually this happened. Um, all stories agree that it was under an oak tree. Um, some say it was in an orchard, some say it was uh, in a fair wood surrounded by fairies. At any rate, Arthur's going along contemplating his upcoming doom and looks up and sees this. People say the name of this story is the loathly lady, as in loathsome. There's this woman, and I use that term loosely in this case, sitting on a stump. And the descriptions, the descriptions are really interesting. This woman was short, and she had bad hair, and she had bad skin. Her eyes were bad. Some say one eye was swollen shut and oozing pus, and the other eye had a blind film over it. They all agree that she had sores and pustules on her skin. Some of them say their hair was spiky. Some of them say that it was just greasy and raggly and straggly. Most of them say that she was dressed in the skins of animals. And it's surprising how many of the witnesses from then have mentioned her breasts. Her breasts were long and pendulous, hanging below her waist. You see what's going on here? Like 1,500 years ago, we were doing body shaming. Oh yes, and she was obese as well, and old. 
And she was probably dark-skinned and wore a hijab. I don't know. There's a good chance, though. She was other in pretty much every important way that a woman could be other at that time. So here is this loathly lady, and she is interacting with the most enlightened king in the world. I mean, we're talking freaking King Arthur of the round table. And she looks up at him and she says, King, you're on your way to meet your doom, aren't you? She did call him king, but there was no on your knee and by your leave, sir. She just boldly stared at him, this hag. That's another word that's universally used. She was a hag. Well, he said, yes, it's true, but lady, how is it that you know where I'm going? Um, by all accounts, Arthur was very respectful towards her, even though, and the descriptions agree on this, most people would recoil in shock at the very sight of her. Well, the smell was part of it too. It's hard to say which one made them recoil. Our man did neither. But she said, uh, I know the answer to the riddle. He hadn't even mentioned that there was a riddle, so he was very curious. He said, lady, pray tell me how it is that you know about my doom and how it is that you know about the riddle that I have to answer. She said, I know many things and how I know them doesn't matter right now, but the riddle was set to you by my stepbrother, Gromer, and I know the answer to it, and I can save your life. He says, pray, lady, if you can help me, I would, I would be most grateful, and I would, I would give you any reward that you asked for. I was hoping you would say that. So here's the deal. I want the fairest knight in the land to agree to make me his wife. So I mentioned that she was ugly. I mentioned that she smelled bad. Animal skins, pussy eyeballs. He's thinking about the knights of his table. And he didn't want to lose his head, but um, finally he said, you know, I, I appreciate what you have to offer, but I could not compel one of my men to do that. And she said, that's just as well. You can't compel them. They have to offer to do it themselves. Well, first he thinks of his nephew Gawain. He thinks of Galahad. He thinks of Sir Kay, he, you know, his brother. He thinks of all the people around the table, and he just can't picture the loathly lady and any of his professional knights. But he says, let's give it a shot. So he helps her onto his horse. And the horse didn't even want to carry the loathly lady, but eventually it did. And he led his horse with, he found out that her name was Ragnall, with Dame Ragnall, back to Camelot. And the first person to come out and meet them was Gawain, who had been in this the whole time trying to help solve the puzzle. And uh, he could tell there was a story there, and he could tell that Arthur didn't want to tell the story. Arthur greeted him, Arthur introduced Ragnall, and most of the young women of the court agreed that Gawain himself was the fairest knight of the court. And many of them had uh, uh, tried in many ingenious uh, court lady ways to convince him that they were the best bride for him. But so far, it hadn't worked. And so Arthur did introduce Dame Ragnall. 
And she just looked at him with this bold, pussy-eyed look and said, you look like you'll do. You probably are the fairest knight in the land. And even though your uncle doesn't want to tell you, here's the deal. I know the answer to what it is a woman wants the most. And if you'll agree to marry me, I'll tell him the answer and save his life. And Arthur's looking at Gwen and Brad Pitt or Chris Helmsworth or any of those guys with the loathly lady. You just can't picture it. And, and Arthur says, nah, you know, don't worry about it. Maybe somebody else. And Ragnall says, no, nah, I like this one. And Gwen says, this is great, uncle. I would gladly give my life for you in battle. And here, I, here's something I can do to save your life. And, and he goes to where she is on the horse and he takes her hand. Now, her hands, actually, she has horrible hands. They're described as talons, all wrinkly, crinkly skin, really bad nails, like dirty nails. Ah. Takes her hand, he kisses her hand, he doesn't make any funny faces when he does it, and he says, lady, would you please be my wife? And she says, I would be glad to be your wife. And Arthur says, hold on a minute. I'm going to go talk to Gromer, and I'm going to give him every other answer we've got. And if any of them are the answer, there's no deal. She says, fine. But if it is the answer, me and Gwen, <laughs> All right. So Arthur rides out to the woods. And Arthur rode in alone and unarmed, as promised, to meet Sir Gromer. And Gromer's there in his dark armor with his sword. And he has hated Arthur and everything that he stands for. Somehow in the whole enlightenment business, he wasn't brought along. His ideas were left out. He's going to get revenge now. And he says, well, are you ready for your doom? Arthur says, well, I've got a lot of answers. I'm sure one of them's right. Whatever, let's hear it. Woman wants children. Nah. Woman wants beauty. Nah. Power, sleep, wealth. Nah. This goes through all of the answers that they've had. Gromer can tell he's getting to the end. And as he finishes the list, he says, all right, kneel. He says, wait, I've got one more answer. He says, what a woman wants most is her own sovereignty. She wants to be able to choose her path in the world, to not have someone else tell her what she has to do, who she needs to be, and where she needs to go. And Gromer got furious. And there are various accounts as to what happened next. One account said he just shattered on the spot. The first one I heard said that as he started shouting something about, Ragnall, you interfering hussy, he started to go through the woods and a tree fell on him. But everyone agrees that he knew it was Ragnall who had given Arthur the answer, and that somehow or another, Gromer and his power were destroyed. And I think that's interesting. What's it mean that speaking the truth can destroy evil? And what does that look like in the world? I just wanted to plant that seed. So Arthur comes out of the woods, clearly alive. Gawain is really happy for him. Didn't want his uncle to lose his head. And Gawain is not the least bit um, worried about marrying the loathly lady.
they get back to Camelot, and Arthur wants it to be a real small ceremony with just family in the morning. You know. Ragnall's having none of that. No, sir. We're going to have a full-on court wedding, clear out the round table, we're going to have it in the castle, we're going to have a feast, everybody's going to be there. And uh, Gawain said, that's the way it should be. So they get it together as fast as they can, and there is a little procession, um, kind of going around from the village up to the gates of the castle and then into the main um, room where the ceremony is going to be held. And you can kind of tell that people are looking at each other and there's some little jokes going around under their breath. Like, dude, and she is so ugly. Some stories say she had a wedding dress, but it was like dressing up a sow. It doesn't really work. And other stories say she continued to wear her animal skins. She wasn't beautiful any way you look at it. And they went in, they were married, went through the whole ceremony, and then they went to the feast. And it's in the evening. Now people are really talking, you know, not at the main table. At the main table, things are strangely quiet. Arthur doesn't want to say anything. Guinevere is trying to make polite conversation because, you know, that's what she does. At the other tables, away from the head table, people are like, you know what comes next, right? Like, after they leave here, you know what comes next, right? What do you think that's going to be like? And, oh, well, that's how people are sometimes. And everybody was wondering whether or not Gawain was just going to stay there as long as he could and get really drunk and pass out so he didn't have to deal with the next part. And most of the guys were saying, that's what I do. Everybody didn't understand. It's not what Gawain did. Our man was as good as his word. He only had, you know, a couple glasses of mead, and at an appropriate time, he stood and he said, you know, ladies and gentlemen, knights and ladies, thank you for coming. It's been wonderful, um, but we are going to retire. And everybody's like looking at each other, and nobody wants to make eye contact with Gwen. So they walk out of the feasting chamber, and they go through the castle, and they go to Gawain's chambers. Now it's getting real. Some stories say that Ragnall got herself ready for bed and got into bed, and Gawain waited for a time in the other room. And Ragnall came to him and said, I'm a bride, and I'm ready to be kissed. Are you hesitating? Are you truly not the chivalrous Gawain? And he said, no, lady, there's just a lot to think about. And he said, you're not young, and you're not beautiful, and you're not rich. And those were all things that I had expected for myself in this life. Yet here I am. And she said, all of those are true. But look at me and see who I am. Because a woman or a person is neither their age nor their looks, nor their wealth, nor their station. I'm not sure exactly how it went down because some things remain private. But he did look at her. And whatever he saw, he leaned down and he kissed her. And it wasn't a little sissy kiss on the cheek. It was full of tongue and everything. Our man takes her in his arms and gives her a full-on 
matrimonial kiss. And then he steps back because she changes. It's like, oh, witchcraft. I don't want any of this. I don't know what's going on. I don't want any of it. There was this beautiful woman there. I mean, she was hot. She had good skin. She was young. She had beautiful dark hair. There was no grease anywhere. She smelled good. Her nails were good. Like everything about her was beautiful and classy. And she said, I was placed under a curse by Gromer and his mother. I wouldn't do what they wanted me to do. When my father died, they wanted me to be their servant. They wanted to shut me in, to tell me what to do, and I refused to do that. And so they cursed me to be a hag, to be the loathly woman, unless the fairest knight in the land would willingly take me as his bride. And you, my dear, have broken half the curse. Like you thought we had it fixed here, right? Not so fast. What do you mean, half the curse? Well, I can only be like this in my true form half the day. So we have to decide. Am I going to be like this at night when we're together, alone? And be the loathly hag when we're out with your friends in the day? Or am I going to be the babe during the day and the loathly toad woman at night when we're alone in bed? The accounts differ here about how long it took Gawain to make up his mind. Some say he said, beautiful in the day. No, wait, beautiful at night. No, ah. Other accounts say he didn't really have to hesitate that long. And he said, lady, This is a matter of your happiness. It's not my choice to make. You choose. And then she gets this big old crazy grin and said that's what it took to break the second half of the curse. And it did. She never reverted to the loathly lady again. And all the accounts say that they lived together for a long time and their marriage was fruitful and productive and that she was wise counsel. But there's things to think about here. What does it mean to be able to curse somebody? And Ragnar was cursed in probably the worst way a woman can be cursed. There's like a billion dollar industry to make sure that no woman has to ever suffer any of those things. You can go into a department store anywhere and find products for your nails and your hair and your breath and your teeth and your breasts. Clearly, these are things that women still fear. It wasn't just those primitive people back there. But somebody had the power to say, you're ugly and you're not all right. And I don't know, because enchantments are difficult to figure out. Was she actually that way? Or was it just that somebody had enough influence to make it so that she felt that way and that people saw her that way? I hear that even in this day, people have the ability to look at a group of other people and say, you're ugly. You're not safe. You don't belong. 
And if people have the ability to curse, I think also people have the ability to break a curse or break an enchantment. And if that's the truth, then we need to be Gawain. And we must remember that in this case, Gawain broke the curse, being willing to be intimate with something that was so other and so unexpected and so outside what he had ever been expected to deal with. He had not been prepared to deal with a hag in his upbringing. Yet he was willing to go beyond that. And at some point, he looked in the eyes of the other and saw beauty. And then he was willing to let beauty inform him and make its own choices. Now, of course, these were primitive people in primitive times, and I'm not sure if that would work today, but it might. That was Michael Jarvis telling The Loathly Lady, live from his living room in Sutton's Bay, Michigan. This was the first episode of A Man Called Trouble, produced by Eric Miller with music by Chris Godfrey. I'm Isabella Fink, and if you want to let us know what you thought or felt or want to keep your eyes open for more stories in the future, you can find us online at soundcloud.com slash a man called trouble. Thanks for listening, and hope you find some hidden beauty out there.